All right, welcome to another episode of the Speech Entry Podcast today with Alex Luizzi. Hi, Alex, how's it going? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, we had uh, a good conversation before 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 this, and um, I think we are going to have a really nice, smooth, and interesting conversation about a, a lot of interesting topics. But before we get into things, um, you know, as always with every guest that we have on the show, uh, kind of to get an icebreaker in, uh, would be great, you know, to to understand uh, for our listeners, like who is it that we're talking to today. So, um, you know, please, you know, take your time and, and tell us where you're coming from, and uh, you know, what are you doing today, and how did you end up doing that? <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan. It's uh, where I'm coming from is a is a is a long question. Uh, I'm originally from France. Um, I now uh, moved to the uh, to the US uh, as part of like the the expansion of our company. I'm sure we'll talk about this later. Uh, but I'm uh, I'm currently uh, back in France because we're expecting the the second kid. So I have a father <laughs> as well, uh, which is a uh, which is a part of the um, the story. And um, and yeah, and we started the, the company called uh, Upflow uh, four years ago now. Um, and it's been a very uh, a very interesting journey uh, building uh, building this startup uh, in this uh, in this uh, in this environment. With a lot of ups and downs and challenges and great moments that I'm uh, very happy to to talk about if that can help uh, others. Um, prior to that, um, I was originally an engineer, so I graduated from uh, an, an engineering school in France, and then I did a master of finance in Australia uh, in Melbourne, which was a great uh, a great moment in my life. And then um, I moved uh, in a very traditional environment. I started working in a corporate. Uh, investment banking world, so very, very far away from where we are today. I uh, spent also three years working in a small telco company. And, um, and I've always wanted to, to start my own, uh, my own business. Um, I had pretty much no idea on when would be the right time to get started. Uh, it was a, an interesting uh, a setup where you're always like kind of thinking about, I'm going to learn this and that and stuff. But mm-hmm. I actually jumped into this at some point. Uh, and I'm actually glad I did it because I now think that there's never a good time to get started. The good time is right now. And, um, and I jumped in and, uh, and I'm uh, very happy and, uh, and proud of uh, like what we achieved uh, together. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's where we are. Um, and um, there's a lot of challenges ahead of us as, uh, as for any, any company. Um, but it's, uh, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting journey. Absolutely. So you already mentioned um, one of the most exciting topics that I love to talk about with people who start companies uh, or who, uh, as a matter of fact, are thinking about starting companies. And that is um, the moment, you know, one decides to think or say that he or she wants to start a company. Um, I uh, I once talked to somebody, uh, Alan Bloch, uh, an entrepreneur as well from New York, uh, who uh, had this uh, nice expression about his journey where he said, at a certain point, he made a calculated bet. Um, I think there's different opinions. So I think there's people that say there's calculated bets. Um, and I think there's people where there's kind of the opinion of saying like, hey, there's never really the right time um, because you never know whether something is the right thing to jump at or not. I mean, you can obviously decrease, um, let's say, risk for spending time on the wrong thing. But still, at a certain point, you got to make the jump. So um, let's go for your story. Let's go for, you know, you starting the company. You already, you know, gave us a little bit of a teaser there. 
uh, how you thought about it, you know, learning things, um, you know, doing different jobs before, but guide me through the process really of like, hey, you're working at a place and then you're like, okay, I'm going to start a company. Let's, let's talk about that time. Yeah. It's in my mind when I was thinking, uh, I was listening to you uh, talking about this, I was thinking about this, uh, this parallel between first time founder and second time founder that is like obvious to me now. Um, and the reason why I'm saying that here is that when I look backwards and when I look at like me in my previous job thinking about, oh, I'm going to start my company, I think the idea that I had about what is going to be this thing about building a company was like 99% wrong. <laughs> and I think it's a kind of a common thing when you are a first-time founder. I think you have just no idea of like what you're starting. And, and it's something that is, I often talk about this, like this kind of like uh, the, the, I call it the tech crunch fallacy, uh, but it's, it's literally like looking at like articles on tech crunch and thinking that like, oh, that's the startup world. Because TechCrunch is only talking about basically like the successes and, you know, companies that raise money, exit, launch crazy product and stuff. And basically when you think that like you're going to start a company, it's like, yeah, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to be one of those, right? And what you actually don't realize is that the companies you see on TechCrunch are just like, uh, in the past, I used to say the 1%, but I now realize it's not even 1%. It's like 0.01%, right? Right. So... I think everyone tends to forget that. And, and as a result, when you think about like, I'm going to jump into this, I think you have a very um, inaccurate vision of like how it is going to be. Um, and that's why I think like, you know, doing this for the second or the third time, like a lot of people around me do this like multiple times uh, after multiple failures um, make a whole difference. So Answering your question, in my case, I was reading TechCrunch. I was very excited about like building a fintech. And I'm like, cool, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, you put together a deck and 10 slides and you just like, yeah, that's a great idea. It's usually about the product, product idea. Yeah. You do something that is going to do this and that and stuff. And you talk to your friends over a beer. Everyone is like, yeah, that's a great idea. You should do it. And then you jump into it and you realize that it's it's much, much harder. Um, the one thing that is quite interesting on that on that path is that there's really two types of people. And there's, you know, whether you do it right or, or wrong, and it's often wrong, as I always said earlier. I think a lot of people are just not entrepreneurs. But over the last couple of days, or last couple of years, sorry, um, there's been this idea that, like, I remember, like, a famous accelerator in Paris who used to say, like, anyone can become an entrepreneur. Um, I don't think that everyone can be an entrepreneur and I don't think that everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and in the sense of like, I hear a lot of people that come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about starting my own company and and they will probably never do it, right? And I think at some point, it's very important to be clear with yourself on like how hard it is to do this and what are the impacts that it's going to be to start a company, especially if that's a a VC-backed, hyper-growth type of company. And that's the process that you need to integrate. And it's usually by talking to other people that hopefully have a, a true filter on like what they say, which is it's really hard, not selling you like the it's the really easy, um, we did everything right type of, uh, type of, uh, of speech. And that's really hard to, to find that. And oftentimes, like people jump into this and they just 
failed because they realized that it was 10x harder than what they thought. Um, and that's part of the process. But uh, I think that this overall ecosystem and environment would benefit from a little bit more of a realistic approach about what it is to build a startup. That's my point when you think about getting into this. Yeah, interesting. I think there is, um, I mean, especially if I look, uh, if I look back at, um, you know, now before kind of the interest hike, interest rate hike, I think like one of the reasons why, you know, is, is why basically we had so many things, you know, or so many ventures pop up is obviously just because, you know, I mean, and this is a common thing. I think a lot of people in the scene are agreeing on that, that the barrier to kind of, you know, start a venture back company was just, you know, kind of really shrinked, right? Or it was non-existent. So, and basically the entire scene was like, hey, you know, you have a given profile, all right, you put a deck together and then there's just money available, let's go, okay? And I think, but that's exactly what you said, right? I think the implications were not really like clear to a lot of people, you know, like what, what does it actually mean to build a company, a venture-backed company, right? So, and and that's why I think there's most probably also a lot of dead fish, right? So like a lot of just like things that have been started, which like absolutely, you know, make make no sense at all, like in, in hindsight. But so if you look from a second second founder kind of perspective or one that is experienced, right? So let's say who has survived, let's say certain fights and is now, you know, kind of in the process of, you know, trying to survive further. Um, how do you look at, how do you look at that specific, let's say, starting point, right? Like where it comes to the decision, I think, you know, deciding to be a founder, it will always show if if you have the sense of urgency, right? I think this is the key differentiator. So there's a sense of urgency, like, hey, you know, I got to do something, I got to do something. But so if that is the baseline, thinking about, okay, I want to start a venture-backed company, let's say, assume that you have the understanding of what that means, right? The implication of taking somebody's money, right? So investor's money. How would you think about that from a second founder perspective when it comes to, okay, the early days, right? So let's say product, and we talked about this before recording, right? Product distribution. How would, what would you do differently? Yeah. Before thinking about like what I would do differently, I do something that I very often do. I don't flow now. It's just like looking at people that are ahead of me and trying to look at how do they do. And one thing that is, really shocking to me when i look at like second time founder is that i feel that like they there's two things one is that they have a much clearer view on like how they're going to distribute the product we talked about this earlier and they move away from only the product itself right mm -hmm. it's like i have a very clear idea on who i am going to sell to what is this um, very specific segment that i want to address in the first place and how I'm going to go after this very specific segment. It's usually part of the very, very early part of this, like thinking of I'm going to start this company. And a company is not only a product. It's something that like, I think that that's a common thing that I see with all founders. And I was one of them, right? Just like starting a company is only talking about this new great idea or about this new product that does this and that and stuff. Yeah, cool, but product market fit, which is basically what you're trying to achieve there in these kind of companies, is the result of a product, but also a market, right? And it's not about, and I think that the challenge, and it's something we had at Outflow, because we're building a product for to help B2B companies get paid, right? It's so broad, right? Any B2B companies could use our product. 
And in the early days, we were just like, cool, no need to think about like who we're going to distribute because everyone can buy it. Big mistake. Big mistake. We should have started in a very, very specific segment. And I think this is something that second time funders do really well. The second thing that they usually do, it's kind of correlated with the fact that usually they have much more resources than first-time founders because they've been able to raise and stuff. But my general observation of this is that they usually start with a team that is much more senior than what you do when you're a first-time founder. Uh, there's always the thing for first-time founders of like trying to, uh, I don't know if it's about saving money, but it's really about thinking because you don't really have an idea of like what great looks like that it's okay, you're going to take people that are super motivated and that's going to work because we're all super motivated. You can be super motivated, but the thing is just like someone who's already done something in a very specific environment can really like help you go to the next stage much faster. And that makes a big difference when you, when you get started. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem because when you're a first-time founder, no one knows you, you have no resources, you have no money. And it's, you know, hiring great people is not only about money, it's also about like who you are, right? Like it's always easier if you've been working for a very successful startup and, you know, you just leave and say, hey, I'm going to start my own company. And then you have 10 people you've already worked with you can just join and just say, yep, yeah, let's do this. I know you, I trust you, right? When I started Upflow, I was just no one, no one knew me. I mean, I had some, a lot of friends, but no one in this environment, right? Yeah. And so it's actually part of like why we started with eFounders. Um, uh, this uh, this startup studio here in Europe, but I felt that like I needed this kind of reassurance to get started and bring together a team yeah. uh, that I couldn't have assembled on, on my own. So I think that's the two main difference: this focus on terms of distribution and the type of team that you assemble that makes a big difference. Yeah, I, I think especially um, when it, when when you talk about team, that also relates to really understand or, or you know having people on on your kind of you know on your team that have understanding in-depth understanding of let's say the given domain that you're also really targeting i think oftentimes what i see is like you know it's just like hey let's do something for this market or whatever right and then you look at the team and like nobody has an understanding of like actually this this area right they're just like coming out as an outsider i think yes there's a lot of arguments about the positives of that right so you're not really biased and stuff like that but then again you know i think I had this really cool conversation recently with um, uh, Phil Libin, who uh, was one of the co-founders of Evernote. And he, his idea or his idea of building product is really that, you know, you start by picking a problem that you really also understand. And then you are not talking to customers because it does not make sense to talk to customers because you need to understand the problem because otherwise it does not make sense to target that problem. And then you're building an opinionated product, right? So you're building a product where you're solving this problem technologically, right? With a product because you understand the problem and it's your opinion that you put in there, right? And then you put it in front of people. So it's a completely different way of thinking about it, I, uh, I, I guess. And that comes from maturity, right? That, that comes from experience, I believe. Yeah, there's uh, something that relates to, to this idea that I often um, I talk about with um, young founders when I tell them like to be careful is the... Uh, the confirmation bias that you have when yeah. you are a young founder and you, you're starting to market your product. In our case, the example is uh, was 
the exact thing that I've seen over and over again since then, which is basically like you have an idea, you pitch it to some people and everyone is just like, that's amazing. That's really great. And you're just like, yeah, I know. That's my idea. <laughs> that's my idea. I thought about this and I think it's going to be really cool. And the truth is that taking a step back, I realized that like an entrepreneur is someone that is really nice, you know, like if, when you were in your, in your day-to-day job and when someone, one of your friends is saying like, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to start my own company. Everyone is just like, yeah, that's cool. That's really great. I'm not, maybe I'm not doing this, but you know, like <laughs> I, I really like that. And if like you call me next week and say, well, can I, can I take 20 minutes of your time? Cause I really want to show you my product. Very few people will say, I think it's a really dumb idea, right? Everyone's going to be nice. And so you have this kind of confirmation bias because you're usually asking the questions, knowing the answers that you're expecting. Um, and the answers are usually like a yes, it's great. And you start building the product. And if you don't have this kind of very quick iteration on the product and go to market, which was one of the most important learning from YC, from Y Combinator, which is actually like go fast on that iteration loop of like build product, ship it to the market, build some product, ship it back to the market, etc., and change it. If you go back to this idea of like, I'm on my own, I built my great product because I've done a hundred interviews and everyone told me it was great. You're going to end up into a point where when you actually put this product in the hands of people that you say, well, oh yeah, that was great, but actually I don't have time now. And the worst thing, and that's why I was a pretty big supporter in our segment to try to sell the product as early as possible, is that the moment where you say, well, would you pay for that product? You have a very different answer. And yeah. I think like confronting this to the reality as soon as possible is quite interesting. It doesn't necessarily work for all type of segments. You know, if you're doing a consumer product, maybe it's not, maybe the pricing is not necessarily like the one thing that is going to trigger like the real thing. Maybe it's usage type of thing. But for us, B2B SaaS, mean market, you know, when I see people telling me like, no, nah, I'm not monetizing because, you know, like that's fine. We'll see later. I'm just like, I think you're avoiding to see the truth, right? <laughs> so that's that's the kind of thing that is quite interesting as well in terms of this confirmation bias that you have at the beginning of your company and the 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 the, the kind of sympathy you have for entrepreneurs. I think it's a very dangerous thing <laughs> for <laughs> entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, go-to-market strategy in a bit. I just wanted to quickly um, um, touch upon this one thing that you sent me. Uh, um, I, I want you to elaborate on it because I, it sounds quite interesting. I'm, I'm curious what you mean by that. So you, you wrote uh, as, as, a, um, as a potential topic uh, that we should talk about that the kind of the founder optimism dilemma. So the micro pessimist slash macro optimism, you know, tell me about, about that. What, what, what's that all about? Yeah, so it's not me who wrote that. It's actually Stripe. Uh, that's one I think one of the, the motto from uh, Stripe. Um, um, one of their operating principles uh, saying that they are micro optimists, but micro macro optimists, but micro pessimists. So basically what it means is that we all know that like day to day, you spend your, your days like working on things that are like not working and you're trying always to improve. But overall, you have a sense of this, uh, the fact that like you're building something great and that you are very excited and that's actually why you want to spend so much time on being a, a micro pessimist, right? Um, I like that idea because I think it it correlates really well with like this kind of dilemma that we have as founders um, with a lot of different peoples around us, uh, whether it's friends, family, uh, the team members, investors, 
there's this kind of constant tensions between honestly like nothing is working and everything is fucked up constantly like you know just like for me it's, it's fascinating to see like how much of Outflow has been a struggle for the last four years and I've never had any point in time at Outflow where I was like that's great everything is fine like I can just rest let's go on holidays and stuff it's always been a struggle right and at the same time like you know when and that's actually why I encourage a lot of people to take holidays and time off, not only because I'm French, but also because I think that it's great for um, for yourself as an entrepreneur and as you run your company. When you take a step back, you know, you're just looking at like the team you've assembled, the product, the the, the customers that are happy and stuff, and you say, we've we've done something, right? It, it's not nothing, it's it's something that is great, and there's some great perspective and stuff. And I think it's very hard as a founder um, to strike the right balance between the, the two. Um, and, you know, I don't have the, the, the right answer, but it's something that is very important when I, when I talk to potential founders and people that think about going into this. Because I think that you need to have that strength at the very bottom of your heart to just always wake up every morning with, what is going to be the positive news that I'm going to deliver for the team? Because we are all down, like, you know, heads down on like the, the problems we have. And if you don't have that energy, it's just like, it's draining everyone. And you just, and you just die because it's so hard. So, so hard that you just can't be like micro pessimist all the time. You need to take the step back. You need to drive the vision. You need to, embark people on a journey that is an, an exciting one um and and that's definitely not easy to do interesting that's a, that's a very good one that's a very good one thanks for thanks for sharing that one i didn't know about this uh about this one that that's a really cool one um let's talk about um expansion or kind of maturity so you started in france but um, funny thing is we got connected through an uh, American investor, right? So uh, <laughs> to, to, to people from Europe, <laughs> uh, so which is kind of ironic, right? Um, but uh, let, let's talk about, you know, about that switch or let's say you also mentioned Y Combinator, right? So um, let's let's talk about you going to, to the US, that decision, what that really changed, you know, and then let's take this whole chapter, Europe, US, kind of also talk about comparisons, et cetera, you know, and also what that meant for Upflow. Yeah. So first of all, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank uh, Matt for connecting us. So Matt Brown, who is uh, probably like one of the, the, the greatest uh, investors I know. And not only because he's been an like an operator before, uh, but we've always had like really, really interesting uh, conversation about how we build those companies, especially in fintech environment. And it's interesting that you were talking about this because uh, we actually met through Y Combinator um, with uh, with Matt. So we both went through uh, the Y Combinator uh, program before he turned out to be uh, to be a VC. Um, so I'm not surprised that that's actually how we met, even though like uh, we are we're both uh, European. So um, thank you again, Matt, for that. Um, for us, the story of like Europe versus the US is a very interesting um, is a very interesting journey about our go to market. Um, when we started Outflow, so basically Outflow is a is a company building software to help B two B companies uh, improve their cash collection. So basically, how you get paid by your customers, right? Uh, it's a very obvious problem for B two B companies how you get paid, and the reason why I'm telling you this is that. 
it's not talking necessarily about the product, but more talking about the distribution. Because when we started, we were like, why would we go somewhere else than where we are here right now? Right here in France, we're in Paris. Uh, this problem is, if we solve this problem in France, this is already like a, a huge like achievement, right? And if we, and we only do like this kind of like one percent of the market, you know, as like every uh, young uh, founder is uh, kind of doing the the classic mistake of like this, that would be uh, like a massive company, right? And I think the one thing that we tend to forget in our analysis was like how we're going to distribute the product, and typically one thing we totally underestimated was the fact that like the financial software in France is a very fragmented like a market, right? Is that something that is super interesting? I don't know. Like this is typically kind of things that you don't look at, but the truth is that because our product is actually connecting to the solutions, what it meant was that we had to constantly build like new type of integrations if we wanted to provide a good quality of experience to our potential users. So our potential users are CFOs. And when the CFO is like kind of contemplating like, oh, I'm going to use a flow, she's telling you, well, cool, but I want this to be available in five minutes, not in five months, right? And we couldn't do this because of the fragmentation of the market. And we ended up in a situation where the distribution of our product was totally inefficient, right? And again, distributing your product at efficient in an efficient way, which is usually called unit economics in, a, mm -hmm. in our jargon, um, it's not something that like, you know, no one talked to me about this at the beginning of Outflow, right? I didn't realize that like, um, this was not something that would scale. And maybe that was okay to get started, but we needed to have a clear view on like, it's not okay now. How are you going to make it like happen in a good way in the future? And we didn't have that. And when we started like thinking about like, you know, we needed to hire more and more people to just get these things together and making sure they would work. And it was kind of starting to be obvious that it wouldn't work. We started thinking about doing what we call now native integration, which is basically like we interconnect with like the leader, like the leading software in accounting, for example. So QuickBooks, Xero, NetSuite, for those who know this, and is very famous in the US. And we can now provide this five minute type of integration where you can go into the product and just get started in five minutes. But the market we needed to be in to achieve that was probably more like in the US because that's where there's like a huge like hegemony of like one player called QuickBooks where 80% of the companies are on QuickBooks when they get started, right? Mm -hmm. Long story short, if I was like, you know, four years earlier and thinking about this, it's quite obvious that like the product we're building is connecting to a financial software, right? And being like kind of close to this financial software and starting your strategy based on this would have made like a lot of sense. And that's the reason why we moved to the US. We ended up like still distributing the product in Europe because the QuickBooks, the NetSuite are also present in Europe, but we do this in a very different way. And actually like if I want to be like a, a little bit uh, technical, I'm going to talk about what we call technographics, which is basically the fact that like, for example, if you look at Outflow right now, we have now seven integrations and we only serve companies that use one of the seven integrations and that's it. Yep. And it seems that it's like narrowing the market and it seems kind of counterintuitive as a, as a young founder, but I can tell you that there's 3 million <laughs> users of QuickBooks in the world. There's 35,000 uh, companies using NetSuite in the world. And that's more than enough 
for us to just get started as a company yeah. while it makes like the experience, the unit economics and everything together much, much better. That's why we applied to Y Combinator. That's how we entered the US. And, and that was a story of like how we landed in the US as initially a French company that actually turned into an American company now. Um, but that's the reason why. And I think we could have anticipated that much better um, having been a second time founder, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, uh, I think uh, Y Combinator, obviously, uh, as the same as TechCrunch, right, uh, is a brand uh, that really stands kind of for the for the ecosystem, so to say. And there's been more and more, let's say, companies from all around the world, right, applying to, to Y Combinator. Um, so from your experience, right, <clears throat> and there's, I mean, there's um, countless companies, right, that, that, that got into Y Combinator. What was, um, or what is really from your kind of perspective? And, you know, you met a lot of really interesting people, you know, among, among one of them is like, for example, Med, right? What is really differentiating kind of like the, you know, the really good ones from, you know, the not so good ones, right? Or if that's possible to kind of, you know, say um, from your observation, from your reflecting basically, from all the companies that entered there? Yeah, I think one thing that is super interesting with Y Combinator is that, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a great brand. And, you know, it's obviously something when you think about Y Combinator, you have this, if you, if you, if you go on their website and do the top companies, like you will see Stripe, Instacart, like, you know, this kind of crazy, amazing company deal as well. Um, and there's, that's the 1%, right? Yeah. And you kind of look at this and say, well, that's amazing, right? I think one thing that is super interesting with Y Combinator is that they are very, very clear from the get-go that there's this 1% effect, right? I will always remember like Michael Siebel, who is like one of the partners um, of our batch. And it's the first part of the batch and he's just telling us this, this very simple story in front of everyone. So it's probably like the 200 or 300 of us that was the last batch that happened in person. It was in 2020. Uh, we did the uh, the COVID batch. So we, it's in person. And it's like, look at people uh, around you because nine out of 10 will not make it to Series A, right? And you're just like, whoa. <laughs> but, the, but the thing that is cool with that, and that's something that I actually quite like about the American culture, is that you kind of embrace like the failure and you live with it rather than trying to hide it, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is something that I see in Europe and especially in France where we really have a problem talking about like failed companies. Actually, like I I can't count anymore the numbers of company where we have this great article on TechCrunch like, yeah, we sold the company. It's amazing. Like we finally, uh, we joined forces with whoever. And the reality is that like it, the company just didn't work and it was an acquihire and... And you know, like, that's okay, right? Like, as a founder, if we fail at Outflow, I would much rather do an acquihire and making sure that, like, all of our team members still have a job in another company rather than just leaving, like, all of them and their families, like, with no job, right? But we can't talk about this, right? And I think that's one of the big difference. I, like, another anecdote that I had, which was really frequent at, at YC, was the fact that, like, you often meet up with founders and they say, yeah, it's, my, it's the third time that I'm building company and the, the all of the previous one failed and that's okay no no one would say that in france no one would say yeah we failed that's okay and, yeah. and there's this idea of like you know kind of really like embracing this idea it's like yep 
there's the very very high likelihood that like you're gonna you're gonna fail there's 90% chances that like you're not going to raise a series A even though like when you think about like you know like a tech crunch like you just look at this like most of these companies are 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 raising series A but it's just a that's just a just a bias of like what is going to be going to be communicated the second thing uh, Jonathan that was the biggest learning for me at YC so the first one was like this idea of like you understand the risks and uh, the 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 failure rate the second thing is like this focus on the on the on the on the GTM, so the go-to market, mm-hmm. and how you push your product to the market really really fast and in a really iterative way. The batch is three months, and they basically tell you like, what have you done this week? What have you done this week to go to the market? Not in terms of like how you build your product, but how what is the advancement that you had towards product market fit? Product market fit is really what YC is focusing on, and for me like you know. As, a, as an early founder, I think I read like a zillion books on like a New Zealand article and like, yeah, product market fit, what is this? Like, what does that mean, et cetera? And then for some reason, we were just only focused on product and definitely not on the fit between the product and the market, right? And this idea that like, it's really about like, how do you go there? How do you push your, how do you build something people love, which is like, you know, what they say is, it, it seems like a little sentence that is like, because that's, the YC motto, right? So like build something people love or build something people want. And it's just like, you think that it's a very basic sentence, but it's really real. And that's exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to do something that people want to use. You're not trying to build product. And and, and the, the pace at which they push you to do so was for me like the big differentiator. That would be the second one. Yeah, that, that, that's... Uh... It, 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 it's exactly what you said, right? It's, it seems so simple. It seems so straightforward, right? But at the same time, it's, you know, one of the hardest things. Uh, it is. It is. Yeah. It, it's really like, a, like this idea that like the, the, the fit between a, a potential market and a potential product and that you're trying to adjust those two pieces at the same time because you can adjust the market, right? You can change market. You can say it was Europe, it was France, now it's in the U.S., it was mid-market, now it's uh, enterprise. There's a lot of things you can adjust and that's totally cool. But you really need to go fast on this iteration because when it's going to click and connect, that's when you have something. Yeah. But if, if it takes six months, you just kind of move one and then move the other and you're never going to get there. And time is just like your most precious resource. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let, let's talk about um, let's talk about investors, you know, uh, since we were talking about venture-backed businesses here right so a category of businesses not yeah. you know entrepreneurship in general there's also different forms of entrepreneurship but we're talking about venture bank companies so let's talk about let's say investors which obviously play a crucial role in in these type of um, businesses so what is your what has been your experience let's say working with and you know pitching as well to different investors uh, have you kind of made up your mind with different categories of investors? You know, how do you, as now uh, you're, and I mean, you know, fundraising is obviously something that is con- con- constantly something uh, on your mind as an entrepreneur, right? So you obviously have some experience with that. Um, and then please, you know, generally share your experience in that. And then maybe also do the comparison of like what you've observed in, for example, the, U- the US and in Europe, for example, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of difference. I think the, the lot of differences between the US and uh, Europe 
um, due to the fact that I think the American markets are much more mature in general, you know, like than than um, than what you have in Europe. Uh, it's quite interesting to see now, like the first wave of second time like successful entrepreneurs in Europe that are coming when it's already been like something for a very long time in in the US, and that makes a big difference. You also have like operators, successful operators. Matt is one of them that now turned VCs. And it's very different, you know, like, for example, in Europe, like, I'm yet to see, like, a very good VC that is actually an ex-like entrepreneur, right? And as a result, you have people that are, like, kind of more, like, the financial type of investor, which is totally fine, but definitely not the one that are going to help you um, on, the, on the operational side. And one of my biggest learnings, um, I hope like they will not listen to that podcast if it's when you publish <laughs> it, but one of my biggest learnings um, is that I think there's a total disconnect between what VCs are selling and what you are buying as an, as an entrepreneur when you take their money, right? Because I think everyone needs to be very clear on like what is happening there, right? You as a founder... I remember the sentence the other day that I heard from another founder said like, you you sell three types of things as a founder. You sell your product, you sell your company to potential team members, and you also sell your company to investors, right? And you're constantly selling. And I like that idea because this is what's happening, right? You're selling a piece of equity to some investors that are that have like interest in, in doing this. And I think... In the same way, you're trying to understand why people would buy your piece of software or its services or whatever you're doing, or whatever you're building. You need to understand what is motivating investors to actually buy a piece of your company, right? And when you're in a VC-backed type of business, they are interested in finding companies that are going to return like at least 10x their investment. And it's important to remember that because I think we all tend to forget that this is what they're after. And then there's been this incredible thing around like, you know, the market themselves is like, we're going to help you do this, right? And the truth is that, you know, for me, like it's been, when I said like, helpful has been a struggle for the last five years, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I think that's that's the game, right? That's where we're in. We've had, when we started raising money, we had all those consultants and experts and everyone who wants to just advise us on like how to do things, how to fix that. We spent so many hours in balls trying to think about like how to fix that. The truth is that at the end of the day, like, you know, it's you and the team that is going to fix it, right? I'm not saying that VCs are useless, not at all. And they're very good to kind of like help you take a step back. And that's where I see a lot of value in the board meetings, for example, taking a step back. But the fact that like they are here to solve your problem because they've seen other companies doing it is I think like a, totally like unrealistic right and that's a little bit of a disconnect and i think we need to remember that like the first job of a vc is actually to finance your business <laughs> so just basic right everyone is just like kind of like yeah but i can do this i can provide a type of advice yes but the number one thing that you're going to do is that you are financing the business and second you know maybe you can help right and um and, and I think like, you know, that's a big difference for me from like type of financial investors and operators. Matt is one of them that, you know, where you've seen, th you've seen things happening and it's not about seeing it, but you've actually done it. And that's a very different type of advice that you, that you get from, uh, from investors. Um, and I highly encourage like 
founders to be careful about this because I think too much emphasis is put on we're the experts of your of your sector. We're going to help you do this. We're going to help you do that. I can tell you that like at the end of the day, when you need to make the big decisions of like, we're going into this new market, we're going to launch that product, the big decisions about like you have to fire people, you know, you can talk to your board or whoever you did like board members, teach mentors and whoever for the longest time, you're just going to be on your own when that's going to happen, like as founders. And you can't hide that. <laughs> that's actually one of the hardest part of the job, right? Making a decision when you just don't know what's the right decision to make, but you still have to make it, right? And uh, I think it's quite important. Yeah, I think it's a very, very important discussion, especially what you uh, what you mentioned. You know, the difference between you know founder experienced uh, investors and you know the more traditional type of finance uh, people, or like I don't know, people that come from consulting finance. You know, and for I I think as well. This is the phenomena, I think, for that is also a result of that. I think also for the venture uh, venture fund growth, you know, the, the the many funds that have been raised as well in Europe and stuff like that, I think is because, you know, money was freely available. That's why that asset class as well, you know, venture capital as an asset class grew and therefore attracted as well a lot of people from finance, you know, or consulting because, it, you know, it's obviously, it's exactly what you said, right? It's a it's an attractive area to be in, right? So it, it's it's flashy. Right. No, I mean, nobody cares about the bootstrapped entrepreneur who's selling, I don't know, <laughs> wood or whatever, you know, like it's like nobody cares about that. Even, you know, the margins are crazy, whatever. Right. But nobody cares about that. That's a really sexy kind of industry to be in. And um, however, I think like my um, so my problem with that in general is like where I don't I, I don't understand it because I believe that. In when you are doing early stage investments, right, where you you invest into the founders right you invest into the people and you need to have conviction around these people in order to do to have that in order to truly have conviction because whatever the financial stuff that you're looking at right like that that is bullshit right we know that but you're you need to have conviction around the people that you're investing in and that i believe you can only truly have or evaluate if you understand whether they are founder material or not, so whether they are founder personas, and that you can only have if you have started shit by yourself, like and and it not not like you don't need to have like this crazy exit or whatever, right? But just like in general, you need to like does this person have like a high pain tolerance, right? So because this is a crazy journey, right? Like and and how how can you how can you develop? this conviction around the per persona, right? If you are not a founder persona. Maybe you just accept that like, you're not going to get it and that's fine. You know, like I, I know some, some funds that are just happy to say like, you know, that, that's the one thing that everyone is just making fun of like spray and pray. But when you think that like 90% of like companies are not going to get to series A when actually what is going to make a material impact for those funds is actually not even series A. That's like, yeah. you know, the billion dollar company yeah. Well, you know, whatever you say, whatever, like, you know, you can put the problem in every kind of angle. At the end of the day, the math are telling us that no one knows, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I can tell you that, like, I remember when we started, you know, there's always this kind of feeling that, like, it's interesting because you feel the same moment as, like, when you go to high school and, like, everyone is just kind of, like, at the beginning of the year looking at each other and like who's going to be the one that is going to make it not make it and that's pretty much what happened with 
when you start YC or when you have an investor that said, yeah, no, I'm not investing. Like, you know, people are not investing in you. Like they're not, you, you show them your deck. You say, you think about the great agent and say, no, that's, that's not great. You don't have the right approach and stuff. And they tell you like, you should be doing like this, like this company, right? I mean, this company two years later has just gone bust. Mm. Is this, am I saying that to say like, I'm the best, whatever? Not at all. I'm just saying like, I think they have no idea and that's okay. And I actually, it was interesting because I remember when um, um, this, when Tiger Global was one of the first yeah. investors actually saying, well, we, we, we are just financial investors. We're not taking a board seat because we don't think they were like, we can really provide value, but you know, we pay for very high valuation and stuff. And it, it was like, I'm not saying that like, I really like their approach, but I, what I, I like the transparency and the honesty about like, I'm not here to tell you like, you know, how to build a company because that's not my job. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm an investor. I'm a financial investor and that's fine. You know, and it's also, I think the point I wanted you to make when we prepared that, that, that podcast, Jonathan, is the fact that like, I think it's very important that as a founder, you understand the financial incentive that they're trying to get out of you and out of your work, because you need to understand the math behind that, right? When you know that, like, I will always remember sitting in a board where we say, well, you guys need to be more ambitious. You need to go 10x. You need to take more risks. I understand that, you know, but looking backwards, like, how do they approach that? They approach that in a portfolio perspective, right? They invested into 10, 20, 50 companies like us. How many companies do I have? I only have one, right? And I've been working like 15 hours a day on that company. And I can't sleep at night because of that company. And if I fail, it's just going to be one line for them on for them on the spreadsheet. Exactly. But that's that's my entire life, right? Is that is that terrible? Like, am I gonna die? No, of course not, you know. But it's like it's still like it's much more meaningful for me. And the type of risk type the the risk the risk reward ratio that I'm willing to accept compared to theirs might be different, right? Yeah. So you need to under, you need to be able to understand these logics, not to say that like it, it's not gonna work or whatever. It's just to understand where you are. Yeah. You were talking about bootstrap companies. We have something in France that is like making me like extremely, extremely sad at the moment is that there are these kind of bootstrap groups that are like trying to go against VC-backed companies and just like kind of saying like, yeah, that's unfair. It's not the right way to build companies. And I'm like, guys, just be in peace, right? It's just different ways of building businesses. I come from a family like they're just entrepreneurs in the construction industry, right? I can tell you that like when I tell them that I raised 50 million Series A, when we were roughly making like a 1 million annual revenues, they just look at me and say like, are these guys crazy? <laughs> but at least you're making money. And it's just like, no, we're not making money. We're losing money. And it's just like, this is nuts, right? It's yeah. just a different world. And that's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Just understand the world you are in, understand why people want to invest, but understand it well, because this is how you keep control on that, what's happening. Yeah, this is so this is so important. And this is like, you know, be, being very, very like speaking honest about it. And it, it makes two things very clear. One is you are a bet. So you as a company, you know, in the relationship with the investor are a bet. You accept that. And that's it. In order to accept that and be fine with this harsh reality that you're just like, you know, you're a column in a spreadsheet, right? You need, and, and then it comes down to that second part, which is you need to have really, really, you know, a lot of conviction about what you're doing. Because that's that's the only thing that's most probably going to be carrying you. 
that's it nothing yeah. else nothing else but it's i think you know if you take a step back i think it's a general thing in life yeah understanding like where you are who you are um and i think that's been part of my journey for the last 20 years like kind of like getting to this point where you're trying to be more what i call coherent mm -hmm. in the sense of like i understand like where i fit in this entire kind of world <laughs> I'm not saying that I know where I am perfectly. <laughs> and it's actually like part of the process is actually saying that there's always a kind of a disconnect between where I am really and where I think I am. Yeah. But it's important that like you keep on trying to improve that 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 understanding of the world around you because that's how you uh you get better at what you do. So so yeah. What that's a beautiful what a beautiful note to end, Alex. That was amazing. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for having me. It was great uh, conversation away from product and, uh, and building company, but really interesting in the, in, the, in the process. So I hope it was helpful. And uh, thank you so much for having me.